0: you're an educator or preceptor using this content for your students, please send them to medicmindset.com for the show notes. That's where we get them diving deeper into the topics mentioned in the show.
1: Let me get Brandon here. Hold on one second.
0: Dr. Bleece.
1: And I think that's where you go from being good to great is picking up these subtle things that's kind of my big list I worry about. Things that need to go to the OR immediately, like dissection needs to go. STEMI needs to go to cath lab.
0: Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is a first in a series of episodes about advanced assessment techniques and the cognitive process of differential diagnosis. It's called the Thinking Series. And the plan is to talk to the brightest clinicians in emergency medicine about how they think. One chief complaint at a time, we dive into the complexities of clinical reasoning. I'm thrilled with how the first episode in this experiment turned out. Dr. Brandon Bleese was kind enough to let me autopsy his thought process when he is presented with a patient complaining of chest pain. He's a physician who's board certified in both emergency medicine and EMS. He's the medical director for an aeromedical service in Illinois. He's on the faculty at the University of Illinois College of Medicine and he's been active in the pre-hospital setting since becoming an EMT in 2003. The topic of chest pain can't be overdone. It's at the heart of our mission in EMS in two ways. First, chest pain can be the first signal of a life-threatening condition. And two, the public has received our message. We've told them, if you're experiencing chest pain, call on us. We'll help you sort through what may be going on. It's our bread and butter. We have to be masters of thinking critically about chest pain. So I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Thinking Series. Meet Dr. Bleas.
1: It's one of the top three visits to the emergency department in the United States. Chest pain, abdominal pain, shortness of breath are the top three. Like you said, it's bread and butter. It's one of those things that we will see a lot of. And when I see patients, I always tell them that the core of the body is fairly dumb in most circumstances, that... The chest can be the belly. The belly can be the chest. You know, it's kind of hard to differentiate that sometimes.
0: I'm glad you're bringing up the abdomen uh, within the first few minutes of this episode because, as we know, many abdominal organs radiate to the chest. And it makes me think of a case when I was doing a clinical rotation with a couple of students. The students did an excellent physical exam. I took excellent history. We looked at a couple of the labs in the chart. We were thinking it was um, something gastrointestinal esophageal spasms, esophagitis, GERD, something along those lines. One of the things I like to do is just when I can catch the physician in the hall is say, hey, you know, what's your thought process here? What are you thinking? She says to me, well, I know it's not his heart. And I thought in that moment, man, that really captures what we're trying to do in emergency medicine. Very often we're trying to say what it's not.
1: Yeah, so very much we focus on the life threats. You know, and one of the ways I kind of I teach this with my residents is when we start talking about chest pain, they present a chest pain patient, and I kind of ta- challenge them is that you need to give me five to ten things that you need to be able to rule out based on history and physical exam, some sort of testing. You had to prove it basically. Especially in the emergency department, we flip kind of the differential diagnosis on its head. We want the worst first. ACS, yes, that's absolutely one of the top things we worry about. We go through hundreds of EKGs, I feel like, a day sometimes just because people come in complaining of chest pain, you know, epigastric belly pain, you know, and it's hard to tell, but there's also aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, um, myocarditis, pericarditis, pericardial effusion, pneumo, tension pneumo, you know, there's lots of things that can kind of come into, as well as all your dysrhythmias can also contribute to chest pain, which that's where all the EKG comes in as well. So if somebody comes in with a very high heart rate and they're in a you know, an atrial fibrillation or an SVT, that's something we have to correct because that can be a life threat.
0: I want to dig in and just immediately start asking you some hard questions. All right, help me with this patient. Sometimes a patient looks dreadful. Everything about them screams cardiac. All the risk factors, the story, everything is screaming cardiac. And we pop them on the 12 lead and we fully expect to find the STEMI, but it's not there. So what do we do with the patient with a strong supportive story, but no supporting EKG?
1: Could this be an ACS without changes on EKG or, you know, an elevated troponin on the labs? Absolutely. So they have to understand some of our clinical guidelines and treatment tools that we can use. They might not be having an acute MI right now. However, could they have unstable angina or could they have... Just stable angina where they need a stress test to actually diagnose their stenosis. So kind of working through that is how I approach it, and I try to and teach, you know, medics and residents to kind of approach it is that just because it's not a STEMI immediately does not mean it's not something related to a coronary or something else going on with the cardiac system.
0: And how do we communicate our concern to the receiving team? Right? I don't have an objective EKG to hand you. So how do I Advocate. How do I communicate my concern without that?
1: Part of it is, you know, like you said, you just got to say, you know, when you give report or, you know, the radio maybe not might not be the best or your telemetry phone. It might not be the best time to kind of do that. But you can always pull the doc aside or pull the nurse aside and be like, look, here's what they look like before. Because sometimes emergency physicians that aren't necessarily EMS focused, sometimes kind of don't they, they half listen to what. The medics are telling them they kind of are focused on the patient at that point where I actually like to talk to the medics and, and, you know, they can give you good insight because there's a transport time in there where they might have looked worse. You know, if you show up on scene and they're diaphoretic and they're pale and, you know, they're just not looking great, but by the time you get them to me in the ED, they've turned around, right? You've given some nitro, you've given them some oxygen, you've given some fluid, you know, you've kind of made them better in some ways. And I think that's part of it is just conveying your story of, Doc, when we got there, he was pale. He was diaphoretic. He you know, just did not look good. And this is another thing I like to kind of hammer home with a lot of the residents and medics is patients might not give you all the history. You have to use all your senses. So if you show up and patients has their med list and their med list has, you know, clopidogrel or, you know, they have their nitro or they have, blood pressure medications, or they have a big scar right in the middle of their chest, I think you kind of have to start thinking like, hey, this person might be a higher risk cardiac patient. Then, you know, the patient might not be that in tune with what all those medications are for. All
0: right. Yeah, that makes sense. So communicate the supporting evidence. I like it. Let me ask you this. An adult chest pain patient comes into your ER. Are there some diseases or conditions that are so concerning that you consider them with every patient? Basically what I'm asking is are there 5 to 10 life-threatening things that you will check for just to make sure they don't sneak by you?
1: My list, I mean I really start with, we start doing worst first is I kind of read my triage notes as well cuz that clues me into what's going on. Obviously, MI is the first one. So myocardial infarction is the biggest one I want to worry about. Aortic dissection goes through my head, so I look at my blood pressures, make sure I have bilateral blood pressures pulmonary embolism. So I kind of, you know, I start looking through some of my criteria. What are their vital signs? What can I use the Wells criteria? And can I use the pulmonary embolism rule out criteria? So the PERC score, I look at their history. Um, are they a cancer patient? Or are they something of that nature, you know, to where I got to worry about a pericardial effusion? Do they have an autoimmune disease like lupus where it could have a pericardial effusion? Other things I worry about, you know, if it's more epigastric, I worry about the pancreatitis piece, which can, can end up being life-threatening. I worry about, you know, that kind of same thing in the epigastric or the right kind of right-sided or in that area is, do we have cholecystitis? Is the gallbladder an issue? Were they going to get septic from an infected gallbladder? You know, if they've been vomiting quite a bit or things like that, do we have an esophageal rupture, what we call a Borhoff's, which is just where you end up getting gastrointestinal contents in your chest cavity, and then you get infection from that? Are they COPD where I got to worry about a pneumothorax? Are they traumatic? Where they have a pneumothorax, and then other things like pneumonia. So well, you know what, so you got to kind of take in the whole picture, I and mean, that's kind of my big list. I worry about there is things that need to go to the OR immediately, like dissection needs to go, STEMI needs to go to cath lab, and then you can kind of kind of start stepping back a little bit from there. Of when you start looking at it like PE, they're unstable. You need to stabilize them, but people have PEs quite a bit, and they might present they fairly benign. In fact, the first patient ever took care of as a resident ended up being a pulmonary embolism patient. They met all the criteria to be low risk. However, as we kind of started working through the, the history and physical and things of that nature, my attending kind of pointed out like, hey, we might need to investigate this a little further. And sure enough, she had pulmonary embolisms.
0: I want to sit here for a second with the PE, the pulmonary embolism, because it was one of the first kind of educations I got when I started precepting in the ER. I had no idea how much attention goes into attending to these patients where there's a suspicion of a pulmonary embolus. I had no idea. Nonspecific findings like syncope and anxiety and this persistent tachycardia seems to be a big one. What alarms you? What sets off your alarms that makes you think, I need to make sure this isn't a PE. What are you seeing?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of touched on some of the criteria earlier when we started talking about the Wells criteria and the PERC criteria, and those are things that you can read about any time. They're, you know, they're fairly well-established. They set up guidelines a little bit. PE's got to go through your head um, with any sort of chest pain or shortness of breath patient, and I, I hammer that home. Whether it's high on the list or low on the list, you have to kind of work with that a little bit. That's where the gestalt factor somewhat comes into is you know when you've seen several of them you kind of start picking them up especially in the smaller ones you can have anything from a benign presentation just of some chest pain and shortness of breath and maybe some increased tachycardia with exertion and maybe a little bit of drop in their pulse ox to the completely unstable you know hypotensive hypoxic you know diaphoretic patient and in fact that's how one of my best friends actually presented to the ED, when he had he had a massive pulmonary embolism. He talks about that impending feeling of doom. When he was laying on his bed in his apartment, waiting for the ambulance to get there, he felt like he was dying. He was anxious. He was sweaty. He was pale, tachycardic. He was tachypnic. He met all those criteria. That's the one extreme. The other extreme is the, I have this pleuritic chest pain, which is very benign sounding but can actually be pulmonary embolism and we kind of start working through those things i mean are they tacky age plays into that a little bit any sort of history of clotting issues so whether they've had a dvt or or pulmonary embolism in the past kind of plays into that are they currently having any sort of hypercoagulable state so are they a cancer patient are they lupus things like that actually increase your clotting factors that can put you at higher risk sickle cells another one of those And then, obviously, we look at other things that might go with that, like estrogen uses is another one as well. So people on birth control, we have to be careful with. So they actually make you procoagulant as well, so you actually have clots.
0: Talk to me about the D-dimer
1: test. There is a blood test. It's not the greatest test, and what I tell patients when we go down this route, it's called a D-dimer, and it measures clot breakdown product. What I tell patients when I order this is it's a great test at saying you don't have a clotting issue if it's negative if it's positive it's positive for a lot of different reasons just because it measures the clot breakdown product so if you hit your shin on your coffee table in the middle of the night when you're walking around your house in the dark obviously a bruise is going to be clot and it's going to break down so it might be elevated from that so it's not a perfect test but it's it's one of the ways we can avoid some of the more invasive testing, such as a CT or the VQ scan, if it's negative.
0: I want to bring up a pattern on an EKG, this S1Q3T3. And when our students first learn about this pattern, they really latch onto it. Uh, They temporarily fall into this fallacy that they think if it's not present, that that means the patient's not having a PE. Can you talk about, do you ever go looking for that pattern and how do you incorporate it into your thought process?
1: I I look for it. I think the literature has kind of shown that it's not reliable most of the time. I tend to look for more signs of right heart strain is, you know, really when you start looking on the EKG. So all your signs that you're looking for there on the right side of the heart where you might have some, you know, hypertrophy-looking type waves. Right heart strain though is one of those things that can show up a lot of different ways. And one things we we have the luxury of doing in most emergency departments now is bedside ultrasound. I will pull out the ultrasound every now and then if I'm concerned and take a just do a real quick bedside echocardiogram. I'll take a look at the heart with the ultrasound. And that also allows me to take a look at the squeeze. And I'm not a cardiologist by any means, but I can kind of tell if it's got a decent squeeze or if there's some wall motion abnormalities. I you know, you can see that right heart strain. You can see if there's a pericardial fusion with tampon on physiology. And in fact before I even get an X ray, I can put the ultrasound probe on the chest and look for a pneumothorax while I'm up there. Ultrasound's definitely a modality that can be used. It's being rolled out more and more in the pre-hospital setting.
0: I saw the blog post you wrote in NAEMSP's blog. I can tell it's an area you really enjoy.
1: That was actually my presentation yesterday here um, at the Code 3 conference that we're at right now. It's probably one of the next generational tools that will be rolled out into the field. And they're actually making it more and more affordable. And that, that tends to be one of the biggest barriers. When there was actually a study done in, I think it was 2014, that they talked to medical directors about what would help them and or hinder them from putting ultrasound in the field. The biggest concerns were cost of the equipment, cost of training, and time for training for medics. And as these machines get more and more affordable, um, I think it will eventually be in the pre-hospital setting more as as a as a new diagnostic tool.
0: Okay, then I have to ask: Where do heart tones fit into this? Is ultrasound going to replace heart tones?
1: You can have all the toys in the world that you want. You know, ultrasounds. I think you have to go back to the classics, and heart tones is part of that. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a expert in every heart tone because I know there are people that. Came before me generationally that they are much better with physical exam findings than I will ever be because just the way technology has changed. Even when I came up through EMS and medical school, we've been always been taught that we have these other modalities. Even twenty years ago, that was you know they had some of these modalities, but they were the cost was associated with them was that, that was hindering. So heart tones, I do think, are valuable in several different ways. You can pick up murmurs, for instance. So if you have a patient that has a holosystolic murmur where, you know, you're worried about like aortic stenosis and let's say they're a syncope patient or they're having chest pain. For, we're talking about chest pain. You know, you talk to them like, hey, do you know you have this murmur? And if it's a new murmur, then you got to start thinking of what's co- what caused them to have this, you know, what's going on in there that caused that. Which changes the game a little bit, right? So if you have somebody who had a syncopal episode and they have this horrible and sounding aortic stenosis murmur, that's gonna you know, that changes how I approach that patient very much so. They're higher risk at that point. On the other hand of that, you can pick up innocent murmurs and scare people. It's kinda one of these things that I think you do need to listen to them. I think they're valuable. I think it's difficult at times in the setting that is the pre-hospital, in the pre-hospital setting as well as in the emergency department just because of noise, to fully pick up and appreciate some of the more subtle ones. I think ultrasound is an adjunct. I don't think it's the replacement. You'll see the, you know, we can get to the point where we can see the valvular structure. We can see if it's intact or things of that that are causing the, causing a murmur. But it's one of those things that, I don't think it'll ever replace it because what happens when your ultrasound breaks? What are you you left with? You got to go back to the good old-fashioned, put your stethoscope in your ears and listen to their chest. So I think a lot of people would like to just use ultrasound as the end-all be-all, but I think that the heart tones will never go away.
0: So occasionally I get to hang out with Dr. Jeff Jarvis, and I brought up this idea about stethoscopes and heart tones, and I really tried to get him to talk straight talk with me, real talk about their use in the pre-hospital setting. And he said uh, something that was really useful for me. He said, your patients expect it. And he's right. They expect a physical exam, a hands-on physical exam that includes the use of a stethoscope. And I think he's exactly right.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with that, is that medicine has always been a hands-on, the touching of the patient, and they expect that. It also just can shows compassion, I think, as well. Laying the hands on a patient, sometimes just that's what you know that helps them in whatever the process is. Even if there's something benign going on, just knowing that there's somebody who cares, and just there is that human contact piece of that.
0: Okay, I want to get back to talking through how you think about chest pain, how you work through the differential diagnosis. When I was in paramedic school, Doctor Edrock was the medical director for Austin-Travis County EMS. And he came over to the college for a guest lecture. And the topic was chest pain differential diagnosis. And he gave the most beautiful visual representation of how to think about chest pain. He very simply, anatomically, walked through the structures of the chest, starting with the most deep structures, the heart, the aorta, and visually took us on a road trip all the way out to the surface, to the superficial structures, all the way to the skin. Is that a useful way to think about it?
1: What he said is absolutely correct. I do think through all the structures in some ways. Now that you ask this, I've always thought about disease process as well, as we kind of talked about earlier. That's one of the big things I kind of focus on is the disease process, but it does come back to the structures. You want to think about the heart itself. So that includes the valves, the coronary arteries, the pericardium, the myocardium, the vasculature coming off of it, so the aorta, any of the branches of that, the pulmonary arteries, so they go back to the pulmonary embolism. So you start thinking of all the structures that could be there. You should be able to come back to what disease process can happen. The deepest first kind of makes sense because the heart is probably one of the deeper things than lungs, the esophagus and the trachea, and then going down to the abdomen, you have the pancreas and the stomach and the liver and the gallbladder, and you kind of have all that in the chest kind of area there. And then as you move out, obviously, you have ribs and you have muscle and you have soft tissue. And there's some of those things that you kind of have to keep going. I think working inside out is a great way to appreciate that. And once you've addressed all the pieces, all the different organs, I think then you can kind of move on it's one of those things that it kind of helps you visually. I think for more visual people, that might be a way to think about that. I think it kind of depends on how you're learning and how your brain's wired for, yeah, like I said, for more visual learners, that's probably a great way to think about it is they can visualize the heart, visualize the structures, visualize the lungs, visualize the pleura, visualize all those pieces where there's some people that might be more of a checklist mentality. That's where they're going to kind of work through more of a systems based thing. So, You know, work on cardiovascular, work on pulmonary, work on gastrointestinal, work on musculoskeletal, work on you know your skin. So that they have a rash, and is this a shingles? It's kind of funny because I've had that actually happen to with a resident presenting a patient to me. They go blah blah blah. They go on tell the story of chest pain, shortness of breath, whatever it may be. I walk in there and examine the patient, and I go, Did you notice the rash on their chest? Though They completely blew over like a skin exam, and they missed the shingles. Thinking through all the different systems is another way. If you're a checklist-type person, if you're visual, kind of visualize the anatomy. And I think it's kind of one of those, the ways that you you have to find what works for you. But I think that's a very worthwhile way of approaching it.
0: The one pitfall, the the thing I have to be careful with, with the structure mental model as opposed to a system ba- systems-based approach, is to remember – as you were saying earlier, that abdominal organs can refer to the chest and that things can inhabit the chest that aren't normally there, like tumors or infectious disease.
1: And I mean, I think it's one of those things that a systems-based would, but you could also think of the structures themselves. So when you think of, when you could going back to your structures thing, think about the lungs and the pleura at that point of, do you have a pneumonia kind of invading the lungs itself or a cancer, the tumor pushing on the bronchial tree. It's one of those things that sometimes is lower down the list because most lung tumors didn't pop up overnight. You know, the the more pressing issue sometimes with them is more the instability of the patient from their bleeding. And, you know, that's the bigger issue more so than the actual tumor itself.
0: So lately I've been telling my students to develop something called an illness script, which is simply you think of a disease like pulmonary embolus, and they will, on a piece of paper, write down physical exam findings, uh, history findings that commonly accompany that disease. So pulmonary embolus, recent travel, recent surgery, sudden onset, shortness of breath, right? The illness script, like paint the story. And I think it's a good starting place, right? They've got to learn kind of what's the classic textbook case. But the worry is, it's overly concrete, right? And they get stuck thinking that they need to check off all of these findings to confirm their suspicions.
1: A lot of things can present different ways. Like I said, there is the classic ACS story of this crushing pressure, elephant on my chest, pain right in the middle, the radiation up into my jaw and arm, and sweaty. You know, there's that whole classic story. We talked about it yesterday here at the conference as well. Um, It was actually presented by my co-fellow from last year. She talked about cognitive bias. And I think that's something we have to be very careful about. And she started with a story about a patient that was short of breath and very anxious. Everyone kind of chalked it up to anxiety because she was kind of quite dramatic. But the patient ended up having quite a large pulmonary embolism. If we label things too soon, you sometimes miss the uh, what's truly going on so you know there's a term for that, It's called early closure or anchoring bias as well and those things kind of come in that you get hooked on something and you focus on just that piece and you don't take in the bigger picture of things
0: okay yeah so now we're talking medic mindset now we're talking about things i love a couple of comments on that first and this is a common pitfall it's called psych out air where we will wrongly attribute anxiety as a kind of a primary diagnosis instead of a symptom of a more serious condition. We always remember anxiety is a diagnosis of exclusion. We exclude life-threatening things first and then consider that it might be the primary problem. I love it that you bring up premature closure. The questions I recommend medics ask themselves to mitigate that propensity, our disposition to have premature closure is to ask these three things. First, what's the worst thing this could be? Two, what conflicting evidence do we have that doesn't, that conflicts with the presumptive diagnosis? And then lastly, what else could this be? It's reflection, right, on their their thinking.
1: I think those are good things to think about. You know, what is the most likely? And I think in EMS in in the ED most likely also has to be most dangerous as well, like you said. I think those go hand in hand. Most likely might be most dangerous, but I think most dangerous needs to come first. You need to focus on those. But I think you also need to think about outside the box, like you said, and what's, what's an alternative? What else could this be? And those can also fall into the dangerous pieces too. You know, I don't think this is an aortic dissection, but it's possible for a chest pain patient. You have data to back that up. For instance, while well, their blood pressures bilaterally are equal, you can kind of you know kind of start moving that down your list a little bit. You just got to kind of make sure you keep a broad enough picture until you get some more data, whether that be a physical exam finding or imaging or story or whatever it may be, to kind of start checking off some of those other things off your list. And then I think, like you said, the conflicting piece is, you know, if it's something long standing if they've had this whatever going on for several months it probably is not something that is going to kill them in the next 10 minutes that being said there are some but generally not it's one of those things that kind of happens so I think there's some conflicting like you said the conflicting data points there can kind of help guide you away from certain things as well so and it kind of helps you create your true differential based on all the data in and kind of analyzing it to put a summary out.
0: While we're on the topic of cognitive biases, can I ask how do you avoid diagnostic momentum? How do you avoid getting on whatever train, whatever diagnostic train that your patient or the patient's family or even the medics, nurses are on?
1: Yeah, so you have to take everything with... Just a little bit of caution. Remember, like you said, the momentum piece is they might be working with faulty information to start with. If you're getting conflicting information from a family member that was on scene or something like that, avoid putting more weight on one thing versus another. That's the way I kind of approach it, to keep my mind open. It's great that the family told me whatever it may be for for a certain patient, a piece of information. And the medic told me something similar but a little different the patients telling me something completely different depending on the, the what's going on sometimes people don't tell you the truth and sometimes perception is different from everyone so i think that's kind of as you have to keep all those things in mind and kind of say okay well the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle of all these stories because everyone's kind of worked from their their perspective they can be guide points but i would not focus on anything greater than anything else in some ways. The
0: EKG really seems to be, for lack of a better word, at the heart of this differential diagnosis, right? It's an early information that we want to quickly decide, you know, STEMI or not STEMI. What else are you doing with your EKG?
1: One of the big things, you know, when you start looking at Wellens or Scarbosa, you got to start knowing what a STEMI equivalent is to kind of keep a big mind on the EKG. You can pick up findings on the EKG that can kind of change your whole mindset of what's going on. And I think that's where you go from being good to great is picking up these subtle things. A lot of people can, can read an EKG and say, great, that's a STEMI or not. Some of these skills are not difficult to teach. It's about how do you go to that next level? And I think that's where the next step comes is taking it from knowing what a STEMI is, but knowing STEMI equivalents and STEMI mimics
0: Give us your list, one more time, a list of things that cause chest pain and we need to be on high alert for.
1: So MI is the big one. That's a big one. Aortic dissection is another one. Pulmonary embolism. Uh, Pneumothorax and then the tension pneumothorax. Pericardial tamponade from either an infusion or something going on of that nature. Other things you have to worry about. An esophageal rupture, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, things that are going to change their course and keep them in the hospital for a long period of time are the big ones I worry about.
0: Thank you so much. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I want to thank Dr. Catherine Counts for connecting us. She's a force in EMS and you guys are both NA AEMSP members. Tell me what you do with the National Association of EMS Physicians.
1: I'm actually on the communications committee. We have the NAMSP blog, which was a brainchild of Dr. Maya Dorsett, Dorsett, who was my co-fellow last year. The idea is that we can bring out medical education to the greater community. In emergency medicine, they kind of have a lot of different blogs for this, but there was not a lot of EMS stuff out there. One of the things we talk about, we do evidence-based reviews. The other area that we have on the blog there is the the medical director's perspectives. Medical directors write their perspective about several different topics in EMS. There's also discussion forum, And then the last one's kind of more of a humanities piece where we kind of, kind of like a book club. So I know they've done, um, it's five days of memorial, seven days of memorial. I can't remember the exact title, title of the book, but it was talking about the hospital, Memorial Hospital in New Orleans after Katrina. And some of the controversies and ethical things that went on there with these stranded patients and how what happened there and then there's another one on there i think they did dreamland which is kind of talking about the opioid crisis in ohio so they kind of you know some of these things that are on the front lines of ems that we talk about but it's kind of these different perspectives more the humanities approach to it
0: i'm glad that you brought up the book club because medic mindset listeners are asking me to ask the guests more often what books can you recommend
1: one of the things I, I've read recently, and I've read it a couple times, is it's a book called On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. He was a psychology professor at West Point, and he talks about kind of stress inoculation and how they train snipers for the military and how they kind of work on this. And how do you take some of these same ideas and how do you create the stressful p- component, but how do you function under stress? So he talks about the vital signs and how you lose your focus as your heart rate and you start working higher because your stress level's higher and your adrenaline's higher. And they talk about green, yellow, red, black kind of being areas of black, you cannot function really at all, doing anything meaningful. And green's kind of your everyday, I'm sitting having dinner. Most EMS providers are probably in yellow when they're when we're actually in the same thing that the are. ER. Probably at yellow when we're working. You get something a little higher in acuity, you kind of go to the red and you want to avoid the black. But what he talks about with the black is that you can kind of create this gray zone between red and black. And if you can bring people back to that gray zone, that he te- how how you can do that with military snipers, for instance, to actually allow them to do their job correctly. And that's one thing I think that is very, very useful in the EMS realm is that how, how can you function in the stressful environment that you don't freeze and that you can actually still physically do your skills because your, your gross motor and fine motor and things of that disappear as you get more and more stressed.
0: You're not the first to recommend that book. It's, it's an excellent one. One of my favorite things about that book is within the first couple of pages, the author, Dave Grossman, talks about, I mean, taboo things that happen when you're under stress. Literally, he talks about people in military or in law enforcement like pooping their pants. People in EMS need to know. Like if weird things happen, you're not alone. Like you're not the first one, person to experience pretty bizarre responses to, to stress.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's all physiologic. That's the interesting all about that is that it's you can't control it when he talks to him, I mean, it's one of those things that it happens and we all respond differently. And I think that's the key is that everyone has to find what works for them.
0: Whoa, you're still listening? That means you're one of my favorite listeners. You listen to the end. The payoff is that you get a little insider info. Medic Mindset is now on Reddit. My friend Sean Massey in Australia, who's much hipper than me, has set me up on Reddit. So if you're there, come join the conversation. The subreddit is just simply called Medic Mindset.